Well, welcome again, everyone. My name is David, and I'm one of the assistant pastors, and it's great to have all of you here in the sanctuary, all of you joining us in the fellowship hall, and all of you joining us by live stream. One of our elders recently reminded our session, our group of elders, that our senior pastor, James, uh, recently celebrated his 10th year of ordained ministry uh, here at MPC. And if you've been around for any of those 10 years, uh, you may know that it's our practice. Our session has our senior pastor uh, take the month of August away from the pulpit so that he might rest, so that he might plan for the year, and that he might do some ministry that sermon preparation doesn't always allow. So you'll see him around in August and working, uh, but he's asked some of the assistant pastors to cover for him throughout the month of August. So hang in there. Uh, if you don't like the sermon for the next few weeks, don't worry. James will be back in September. If you are here in August, our sermon series is Hungry for More, and we've been considering those cravings that we all have deep in our soul and looking at how Jesus can satisfy those cravings. And we've been doing this by looking at the Gospel of Luke and looking at several interactions that Jesus has with various people over meals. And one of the things that we've said from the beginning of this series is that Jesus doesn't just come to solve our problems, but he comes to satisfy all our longings. I'm excited to open this text with you. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 9. If you have a few Bible that you grabbed in the back of the fellowship hall or in the pew, it's found on page 866. I love this story because it's a miracle, and it's only one of two miracles that are found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of those is obviously the resurrection, and the other is the feeding of the 5,000, or you could maybe call it the training of the 12. And so we're going to look together at Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 10 through 17. It says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, And cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people." For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, would you enable us to eat your word in these moments and to be satisfied by the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, my fourth grade teacher was named Mrs. White, 
and she had a lot of posters on the classroom walls. Uh, There were the educational posters, uh, ones for math, ones for science, and we also had a lot of those well-known motivational posters hung on the classroom walls. You may remember some of them, right? When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. When opportunity knocks, you open the door. And the one that stuck with me and really became a life motto was this one. It said, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Now, that's sort of my default way of living my life. And there's something that's helpful about that, right? Persistence is a good thing. But there's also something very unhelpful about that motto. What's unhelpful about it? The message of that poster is try harder. The message of that poster is try harder. It's self-sufficiency and it's isolation. That the solution to all of your problems is just to work more. And I dare guess that many of you have done the same thing in your life. But I'm here to tell you, that may work for a season, but eventually it won't work. Why? Because simply trying harder will wear you out. Life becomes this endless series of pushing a boulder up a hill only to be told down to go back down and to do it all over again. It's just tiring, expending all that effort. Or eventually it just doesn't work. Life is like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. Eventually you can't and it pops to the surface. Or if you live your life that way, you'll end up in isolation. Because if all you need is you, all you will have is you. Friends, I don't want my epitaph to read, when things got tough, he hung on. (laughs) Now again, persistence is a good thing right? Effort is a good thing. But that's the point of this story. Jesus offers us more. And in this story, Jesus intentionally takes his disciples and me and us to the end of our rope, and then he gives us more. And so we're going to look at this story by looking at the expectations of the crowd, the purposes he gives to the disciples, and then the sufficiency of Christ. So first, let's look at the expectations of the crowd. Well, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9 is really the end of part 1 of this Gospel. And it's really the climax of Jesus' ministry. He's been going about teaching and preaching and healing for about two years. And he's at the height of his popularity. He's become so famous that Herod, the ruler of this region, begins to ask, Who is this person? Is this John the Baptist back from the dead? Is this Elijah? Is this a great prophet? Who is this person? And we're also told in the text that when Jesus went away, some 5,000 men uh, surrounded him. And note it says men. That doesn't even include the women and children. A lot of commentators estimate that it could have been as many as 20,000 people. This was the height of the popularity of Jesus, and people are flocking to him. 
Why? Well, it's not hard to see why, is it? People are hungry. They're craving healing. And Jesus is a miracle worker. He's the person who's going throughout the countryside and the blind can see and the lame can walk. And so the people who are hungry for physical healing are after Jesus and they are surrounding him because he is one who can do something about it. They are craving healing. But not only are they craving healing for their physical ailments, but they're also craving freedom. You know, the Jews at this time were were living under Roman rule. And so when Jesus went to Bethsaida, as it says in verse 10, there began to be talk of maybe a revolution. Why? Well, you see, where Jesus went to Bethsaida, this was a remote and a rural region. This was the place where revolutions began. It's kind of like maybe a Berkeley, right? A liberation movement begins. It's like when they went away to Bethsaida, this is where a revolution begins. And so people begin to talk and to long for freedom, to be set free. And so the Jewish zealot movement was centered in this region. And though it's not explicit In the Gospel of Luke, John in uh, 6.15 tells us that they were trying to force him to be their king. The crowds were hungry. They were hungry for healing and for freedom. So you can just imagine, right, this combination of political unrest, this leader with great power, and living and ministering in this region created quite a buzz. This is not just a picnic, but this is a political revolutionary rally. The people came to Jesus. Why? Because they wanted him him to feed them, to heal them, and to lead them to earthly political freedom. They had expectations. And I think if we're honest, the crowds reveal something about the hunger that is inside of all of us. Think about it. How many of us want a world with no sickness, where our children do not get cancer? How many of us want a world with no oppression, where we don't get amber alerts on our phone? How many of us long for a world where things are different and we are free. You know, many philosophers have talked about this universal hunger. Even atheists like Jean-Paul Sartre who wrote that God does not exist. I cannot deny he's an atheist, but he writes, that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. Plato described this universal hunger as longing for all that is true all that is good, and all that is beautiful. And if you haven't read Plato, maybe you've heard Bono's gospel song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or Bruce Springsteen's, everybody's got a hungry heart. (laughs) In our souls, we all have internal cravings, longings for things to be different. And how hungry are you this morning. 
What do you think it will take to satisfy your soul? You see, it's actually amazing in this passage because they have expectations. But Jesus actually says, your expectations, they're underwhelming. I can respond to your expectations. I can heal the sick. I can preach about the kingdom, but he raises the stakes in John chapter 6, again in this same passage, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He says, you long for many earthly things. That's good. But I offer you more. I offer you eternal things. He says, these cravings for earthly healing and freedom are good, but there is more. Jesus offers us more promises than we think we need. That's the first point. And it brings us to the second point, where Jesus is going to use this hunger to get us ready to receive more. So let's look now at the humbling purposes of his disciples. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, the shadows are getting long. They've been out here. This sermon is long. You think you get hungry at 12? Wait till you hear a sermon that lasts till about 4 or 5 o'clock. Everybody's getting hungry. And the disciples say, hey, Jesus, you might want to let them go get brunch. They've been uh, running a long uh, distance to come and hear you preach, and they're hungry. Send the crowd away because we don't have enough food to feed them. The disciples are impertinent and their request is reasonable. But then look at Jesus' response in the first half of verse 13. In the Greek, emphatically, he says, you, you feed them. He's emphatic and his command really is unreasonable. The disciples look at Jesus and they say, how are we supposed to feed this crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people. There's no Pizza Huts. There's no Jay Gilberts. There's no McDonald's right up the road. And even if there were, Philip says in another gospel, it would take eight months' wages to feed all of these people. And Jesus is not dumb. He knows they don't have enough food. He knows they don't have enough money. So why does Jesus command them to do this? Well, I think one reason is this. It's humility. Now, if you look back to the beginning of chapter 9, again, remember, this is the climax of part 1 of Luke's gospel. And this is where Jesus sends out all of his pastoral interns, all 12 of them, to go and minister throughout the countryside, and they go and they can heal people. And they preach And it's amazing. And they come back and they're like, Jesus, this is awesome. And we're worn out and we need to rest. And in this moment, Jesus wants to drive home to them that their task is impossible without him. He wants his disciples to be humbled by his purposes. They need to be reminded 
of his power, even though, even though they had just seen it. Now, I find so much hope in this because here you have the 12 disciples who they go out, they do some amazing ministry. And then when the next crisis hits, as one commentator said, they act like men without God. (laughs) You think about that over and over. The Israelites, the relapses over and over. God does these amazing things. And then we've got this immediate crisis and we're like, what are we going to do? And the disciples are the same way here. Jesus basically holds up a poster to the disciples and says, you're at the end of your rope. Why don't you tie a knot and try to hold on? You see, Jesus could have waved his hand, right? He calmed the storms with his voice. He could have waved his hand and said, everybody gets a Big Mac, and bam, everybody has a Big Mac. But what does he do? He works through the disciples. He points to them and drives home that what I'm asking you to do is impossible, and you are inadequate, and you are insufficient. You do not have what it takes. Now, some of you are pushing up against that in this moment. Inside of you are saying, I do have what it takes. (laughs) And some of you are finding great rest in that statement that you don't have what it takes. You see, this idea is not unique to Christianity. It's sort of common grace in all the 12-step programs. What's the very first step? You have to admit that you're helpless. And we have so many renewal groups here at MPC. And so if you're struggling with any addictions or that identifies with you, then then reach out. But you see, we have to admit that we need help in order to get the power that we need. If you're visiting today, you can look around this group and you can be like, hey, this is a nice group of, of people, right? But how Rob Yancey put it last week, he said, if you took a picture of us, the capture underneath this church would have to include adulterers, physically and spiritually, addicts of opioids, alcohol, power and approval, broken people, each and every one of us. And the way that James put it when he began this series is, you are a Christian and I am a Christian because we are not awesome. We are helpless. We are helpless. So welcome to the party. Friends, here's the point in this text. We are powerless over our problems, and God calls us to something greater than ourselves in order to humble us before someone greater than us, Jesus. You see, if we only accept the task for which we are adequate, we will never depend on him. One pastor put it this way, the church, I love this, the church is always in a crisis and it always will be. There will be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. Jesus leads his disciples and us to a place where we recognize that our resources are small and insufficient. Think about that in the context of community, in your own relationships. 
Where or who are the people that you feel like you are at the end of your rope with? Is it your parents? Is it your kids? Is it your roommates? Is it your boss? Is it your neighbors? Is it your political opponents? Have you come to the place where you recognize that we cannot control the things that matter most? We can't fix our marriages with our own power. We can't heal our kids by trying harder. And we can't get along with our bosses in our own strength. In order to humble us with his purposes, Jesus gives us more people than we want to love. And that brings us to our third and final point. Only when you feel your insufficiency are you ready to hear this. That Jesus is sufficient and his food is satisfying. The need is greater than we think. The assignment is beyond us. And so the question is, where are we going to get the power that we need for what we have been called to do? Look with me at verse 16. Look at the four verbs. It says that Jesus took. It says that Jesus blessed. It says that Jesus broke. And it says that Jesus gave. Do those sound familiar? They should, right? These four same verbs are used again by Luke in chapter 22 where Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus is saying in this passage right here, you are craving healing and freedom. You want a revolutionary leader like Moses who brought manna in the wilderness. You want a great prophet like Elijah or Elisha. You want someone who can lead you out of exile into freedom. And Jesus says, I can do that and more. I don't offer you simply freedom from human oppression, but I offer you freedom from sin and death itself, not through just physical bread, but through me. I am the bread of life. You remember Jesus on the cross, right? Those famous words when he looks out at the crowd and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What is he doing in that moment? He's blessing. And then he's crucified. And in that moment, His body is broken for you and for me. And friends, this bread had to be broken into pieces so that we could be fed and could be satisfied. And this story is amazing because if you read the context... Jesus had just heard that his cousin, his good friend, John the Baptist, had been beheaded. He's tired after ministering because he's human and he wants to get away by himself for a few moments to mourn and to recharge and the crowds come around him and what does he do? He feeds them. Friends, when we understand that we're not saved by holding on to the rope, by our own efforts, by our own work, but by his body that we are saved, that he is the one 
who has done all the work for us. When we understand that we are loved absolutely and unconditionally and understand what grace means and that his grace is the bread of life, when we eat that, it will give us energy and life. And just as God fed the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus feeds these people in this wilderness. And he will do the same for me and you. He will feed us because his grace is sufficient. And what's the result? (laughs) We don't talk about this enough in this passage. I love verse 17. It says, they all ate and they were satisfied. And they weren't just satisfied, they had leftovers. There were 12 baskets left. You know, one of the reasons why this miracle is included in all four of the Gospels, because it's one of his most public miracles among the most people. And so when this Gospel is written, they could have verified if this actually happened or or not. Because if he fed 20,000 people miraculously, then those people were still alive when this Gospel was in circulation. And so it speaks even to the historical reliability of the Gospels. But think about all those stories in the Old Testament of God miraculously providing bread. What about manna? They could only take enough for the day. But we are intentionally told that when Jesus comes, he's better. (laughs) He's better. And there's more than enough food for all of their hunger. Remember those four verbs? Now I'm not a Greek scholar, but I read Greek scholars. (laughs) And those four verbs have tenses. The first three verbs are in the aorist tense, and the last is in the imperfect. The aorist means it's a one-time action, but the last verb is imperfect, which means he keeps on giving. He keeps on giving. He broke it once. He blessed it once, but he keeps on giving. You can never out his grace His mercy is new every day. Your hunger and your craving is never more than the food that he provides, the sufficiency of Christ to meet every soul craving that you and I have for all of eternity. Friends, we were made for God. And as Augustine says, our souls are restless until we find rest in him. Here's the point of this passage. This miracle is sandwiched in between Herod asking, who is this person? John the Baptist, Elijah, Elisha, a great prophet. He performs this miracle. And then, and then he asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? He says, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And some say you're a great prophet. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and asks, but who do you Say that I am. And the climax of the Gospel of Luke is Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, Jesus is blessed and offered his body to you and I today. And the question is, will we eat and be satisfied? For those of you who have answered yes to this question This table, this sign, this seal is for you. 
For those of you who may have answered yes for the first time, then Jesus is for you today. And for those of you who are unsure what you think about Jesus, then this church is for you. This community is a place where you can ask questions, where you can follow Jesus and figure out what that means. Friends, in our world of expectations, Jesus is sufficiently satisfying. Jesus gives us more than we think we have. So what is the Christian message? Not when we get to the end of our rope to tie a knot and hold on, but when we get to the end of the rope, he will hold on to us. We don't have the resources to do what he asks, but he will provide them for us. We don't have the ability to do what he commands, but he will work for us. We don't have what it takes to save ourselves, but he does, and he gives us his life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are able to do far more than all we ask or think. And we don't have what it takes. So give us this bread. Allow us to hear your invitation to be fed. Enable us to come to your table by grace through faith so that we might be satisfied by this bread of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.